Hello and welcome to the podcast, A Very Brief Introduction to the British Empire. This is a podcast run by Uncomfortable Oxford, which is a student-led social enterprise in the city of Oxford. My name is Paula Larson, and I am one of the co-founders of Uncomfortable Oxford. So today we're doing a special edition lecture in light of the current COVID-19 crisis. And we hope you're all safe and healthy at home, social distancing just like us. So please forgive us if the audio quality varies during this podcast. We did have to record most of it over Zoom. The topic today is going to be disease in imperial context. And this is actually an area that I personally study. So my area of expertise is in public health policy and also history of vaccination and epidemics, pandemics like we're seeing today throughout most of modern history. My name is Olivia Durand and I'm the other co-founder and director of Uncomfortable Oxford. My area of expertise is global and imperial history and within it I'm very much interested in the history of expansion, colonization and settlement and in those stories I do encounter quite a few diseases as well as disease prevention. Today's lecture is on empire and diseases mostly in light of the current situation but also because epidemics and contagion played a huge role in imperial expansion. The lecture is divided in three parts. The first part will be about disease theory. Then we'll think about how those diseases or epidemics played a role as agents of empire. And we'll give you two studies, one in North America and another one in the Caribbean. And finally, we'll talk about the social impact of all those diseases and epidemics and one of the most important is how they helped formulate race theory and modern racism and how we can still see legacies of those policies and of those understandings still today in the way that we're fighting against epidemics across the world. Our understanding today of germ theory is a very new concept. For much of history there was no such thing as germ theory. Europeans believed in something called humoral medicine. This involved the four humors, which were four vital fluids of the human body. Uh, black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, and blood. And the idea was that you had to stay in balance. So if you had too much of one, like say you had a high fever or you were just hot-tempered as a person, they would bloodlet to take away some of the hot, and that would bring you back into balance. And balancing, in general, is, is a concept that tends to exist in many different medical traditions. But this was more a learned theory, meaning that mostly it was known by physicians who followed or studied medicine in a professional sense, like if they came to the University of Oxford, for instance. Uh, there's also something called the miasmatic theory. And that's the theory that there's something called miasma in the air, which is a disease-causing agent. And it was considered to be basically bad smells. Uh, miasma directly translates into unpleasant so the idea was that bad smells themselves actually cause disease. And there's quite a lot of logic to that idea. Because if you think about things that smell bad, they're usually not things you want to be near. Because they are generally unhealthy. So human waste, for instance, smells really bad. Or things that are rotten or putrefying, you wouldn't exactly want to eat. You'd avoid. So the connection between bad smells and disease is actually quite a logical one that does, in some way, reflect later germ theory. Because now we know that those bad smells are actually usually caused by bacteria. The only difference is that they actually thought the bad smell itself was what caused disease. So if you've ever seen an image of, say, the Black Death, for instance, you'll see these depictions of the doctors with these giant bird-like helmets on. And they would stuff those beaks full of different good-smelling items, like uh, flowers or herbs that smell quite nice. 
they thought that if you could block the smell itself with something that smelled good, you could actually block the disease as well. So in lots of ways, these are like our early N95 masks that you wear today to block viruses. But humoral medicine and miasma are both European concepts of disease. And we definitely want to get away from this dominant belief that the Europeans were the only individuals who came up with medicine. Today, modern medicine is incredibly westernized. But historically, there have been many different medical traditions worldwide. For instance, the North Americans had a very sophisticated system of traditions around medical practice, nutrition especially, um, and a belief in that balance again. Did any of the indigenous, particularly North American uh, medical practices, influence European medical practice? Yeah, definitely, especially with the case of scurvy. Many of the Europeans, when they came over the Atlantic, were on these long ocean journeys. And scurvy is caused by a deficiency in vitamin C over long periods of time. And they would, of course, have a lack of fresh fruit and vegetable or access to vitamins whilst on those journeys. So they would start to suffer from scurvy. And it's quite a disgusting disease. It causes really bad bleeding in your gums. And eventually, if you go without eating any vitamin C, you will die. But the good thing about scurvy is it, it's easy to treat. All you have to do is ingest the vitamins you're deficient in. And there's a case in 1535 where the European explorer Jacques Cartier was sailing with his ship of men, and they all came down with scurvy. 25 of them had died, and about 40 more were sick already. But Cartier had kidnapped and enslaved a Huron indigenous man named Dom Agaya. And Dom Agaya had also gotten sick, but he'd actually completely recovered. And Jacques Cartier asked him what was this magical cure that he had for scurvy. And Damagaya eventually revealed that if you use the foliage from the Amida tree, which is a type of cedar tree, uh, you could recover from scurvy. Now, he didn't know that it was because of vitamins at the time, but it, this cure was incorporated into European practice. And it was a very effective treatment to stave off the effects of scurvy, which, of course, uh, could kill many sailors and indigenous people as well if they were left without, uh, without nutrition for a long period of time. And of course, indigenous North American traditions aren't the only type of medical traditions we see. Uh, there's Ayurveda, which uses complex, uh, complex herbal remedies, as well as massage, which is used quite often in modern uh, medical treatment for injury. Um, and also there's, of course, traditional Chinese medicine, which again utilizes similar concepts of the balance. We have the balance of the qi, and that's another concept of vital energy, which circulates through something called the meridians of your body. And it regulates organ function and digestion and just general health. Practices from traditional Chinese medicine include acupuncture, which is used quite often in treatment for injury as well by chiropractors. So to sum up, we have not just humoral and miasmatic theory from European tradition. We have Ayurveda from Indian tradition. We have Chinese medicine. And we also have uh, indigenous practices, which have all informed concepts of health and medicine today. And all of them were also used to describe disease during the imperial period. So you talked about a lot of medical traditions, medical practices, and also some medical beliefs. How do you think the empire or the different imperial projects come into play? Yeah, so one of the classic cases of how disease impacts imperialism is the devastation that's caused by smallpox when Europeans arrive in the New World. The Europeans brought with them many infections that had never been seen before in North, Middle, or South America, and by far the most deadly was smallpox. This devastation is referred to as the virgin soil thesis. It's the idea that when a community of individuals have never had exposure to a disease, 
the first arrival of that disease means a devastating pandemic that affects every person because the disease is able to continue spreading and finding new hosts upon new hosts. And it's very effective at neutralizing those hosts while still being able to spread onwards. This theory was put forward by a man called Alfred Crosby, and it's come to be accepted as a, a good explanation for why Europeans were able to devastate the population so effectively in North, South, and Middle America. For instance, in North America, there's a lot of debate about how many people actually existed before contact. Some estimates go out as high as 20 million, but there is general agreement among scholars that at least 7 million people were present before Europeans arrived. So just think of that, that 7 million people of tribes from very diverse cultural backgrounds and traditions and languages, and probably more. So it's kind of hard to tell because we don't have written records that could help us determine the size of populations before Europeans arrived, because Europeans may have made contact with indigenous populations in certain areas, but the disease spread far faster than they did. And as the disease spread to a new community, people take sick and they'd start to die and then people would flee from the disease and then the disease would travel with them to the new communities and more people would die again and they'd flee again. And so this really spread the disease much faster than the Europeans ever spread across North America. And it's not just smallpox that impacts the New World. Europeans also introduce plague, uh, new strains of typhus and influenza, yellow fever, malaria had never been seen in the New World until the Europeans arrived, pertussis and measles as well. The virgin soil thesis is quite an interesting concept, but I imagine as any handy concept probably has some problems. Can you tell me more? Yeah, so there are some critiques of this thesis, uh, especially that it's very deterministic. It kind of theorizes that the introduction of a disease will always mean vast suffering and, and destruction. So it's very fatalistic. But most importantly, it ignores the actual conscious actions of Europeans who brought disease to the new world. Because although they did so initially without knowledge of it, they definitely saw the effects of disease, understood that they had brought it with them, and they often themselves did not get sick, at least early on. And they knew this was a weakness of indigenous populations, which they then sought to exploit. There are cases of biological warfare by the British during the French and Indian War, for instance, when Sir Geoffrey Amherst, the commander-in-chief of British forces, he advises one of his colonels, Henry Bouquet, to give as a gift to visiting indigenous emissaries um, some blankets that had been taken from a smallpox infirmary and were thus infectious. So that tells you that disease in the New World isn't just uh, the consequence of kind of accidental infection, that there is a lot of conscious choice by the Europeans to actually do this. But disease transmission is not just a one-way street, it does go two ways. And one of the other consequences of bringing in diseases like smallpox, typhoid, influenza, pertussis, etc., is that a lot of them are amplified in virility. A lot of these infections had previously been endemic in Europe, meaning they often happened for a short period of time in childhood, and it was quite mild, and people would gain immunity, and therefore never get it again. But once you have the spread across the New World, a lot of diseases are able to increase their impact and therefore then reinfect Europeans who previously had immunity to it. So Europeans definitely start to die of smallpox uh, as time goes on. And so smallpox epidemics become a feature not of just indigenous experience, but of most settlements across North America. There is also the argument made that the New World itself sent diseases back to Europe to harm populations there, uh, specifically syphilis. There's evidence on some early indigenous bones far before Europeans arrived, 
of tertiary stage syphilis existing in America. And it's thought that syphilis itself was then caught by Europeans. And then, of course, that had a devastating impact on European history for a very long time. Syphilis is a horrendous disease. It was actually called the Great Pox. Early stage results in pox-like scars all over the body, which then develop into these seeping wounds. And, um, and the longer it progresses, it goes through different stages. And by the tertiary stage of syphilis, it often infects the brainstem itself, making one just completely brain dead before they die. Syphilis killed many an important person in Europe over time as it spread, and so it had a, a very big impact on European life as well. It's often said that while smallpox struck North Americans, syphilis struck back. So to sum up, smallpox devastated populations. It was, wasn't only accidental, there was definitely biological warfare happening, um, and diseases went both ways, so into the New World originally, but also back into what was considered the Old World. So that's a summary of North America. Olivia, can you give us an introduction of what was going on in the Caribbean at this time? So in the Caribbean, first came the almost total erasure of the indigenous populations, the Tainos and the Carib in particular. And then came the transformation of the ecology and environment of the Caribbean. So the Caribbean used to have huge jungle-like forests, lots of hills on their islands, but with the development of large-scale plantations, most of the trees were removed, and this made these tropical islands particularly prone to a very, very annoying insect, mosquitoes. And mosquitoes, in the context of 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century Caribbeans, were a much bigger worry than we could imagine today. Because most indigenous populations had been decimated through European diseases, such as the smallpox, and also very brutal military conquest, the workforce had to come from somewhere else. There was no way to enslave indigenous people if they're all gone. At the time, it was a common practice for Europeans to use indentured servants, indentured servants being white coarse labor, often coming from disenfranchised groups. But these indentured servants died very fast upon arrival and barely survived the journey across the Atlantic. The islands of the Caribbean offered a lot of promises, a lot of very high economic promises, in particular with the conservation of sugar, sugar being a very, very valuable crop and something that Europeans started to be very fond of. So at this point, eyes turned towards the west coast of Africa, where Europeans had already started trading slaves before bringing slaves across the Atlantic. They had already started to use slaves as labor on some of the Atlantic islands off the west coast of Africa. And the idea was that the similarity of climate between the Caribbean and what was then called Senegambia, so the west coast of Africa. Uh, this similarity of climate suggested that African-born slaves would be the most suitable population to work the land. Now, remember when Paula mentioned the syphilis that strikes back? That's one exchange coming from the new world into Europe. Well, another exchange happened with the start of the slave trade. And this time, it came from the African continent. 
into the so-called new world. By starting to bring many mini ships filled with African slaves to the Caribbean and to the American mainland, another ecological exchange took place. Safe ships brought yellow fever and malaria through their main hosts, the famous mosquitoes. Now, we know that mosquitoes are vectors for such deadly diseases as yellow fever and malaria, but we only started understanding that in the early 1900s. And for several centuries, that very tiny carrier helped diseases disrupt a lot of settlement projects and killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people over the course of several centuries. But what people understood at the time was where the disease came from and who were the people who were affected and who were not. I'm just going to dive in here to give some background information on what malaria and yellow fever actually are. They're both mosquito-borne infectious disease, but malaria is caused by a specific type of parasite called plasmodium. Plasmodium incubates for seven days in the liver before it causes severe fever, and then, depending on which strain it is, can include complications such as chills, headache, muscle weakness, and if it's a deadly version or you have deadly complications, can lead to coma and death. Yellow fever, on the other hand, is caused by a virus. And it's called yellow fever because it often results in liver damage, which causes jaundice, making the skin quite yellow, which is where it got its name. We're currently working on vaccinations and other types of preventative measures for malaria, but we do have an effective vaccine for yellow fever. So two different diseases, but two diseases that existed for a long time on the African continent, two diseases that are both carried through mosquitoes, mainly. And because you can actually gain immunity after having uh, had yellow fever, quite a few of the African uh, who had been captured and enslaved on the west coast of Africa and sent across the Atlantic tended to be a lot more resistant to that very deadly disease compared to the European settlers and planters who were coming all the way to the Caribbean. The rise, the sudden rise of yellow fever and malaria that was kind of concomitant with the arrival of the first slave ships disseminated the idea that European constitutions could not really survive in such tropical latitudes and further encouraged the importation of enslaved people on ships. But there's a nuance there. It's not because African people tended to be more resistant to yellow fever because they might have gained immunity or more resistant to malaria because having had it a few times, they had built resistance. Was the nuance just that Europeans didn't really care if their slaves died? So there was the idea that they could easily be replaced. And actually, that's a very good point. On the plantations, just the workload and the privations that the slaves were enduring were so acute that Adult slaves were brought to the plantations and had a life expectancy of 10 to 12 years after their arrival. This might be weird if you think about how big the slave population became on the plantations, but this rapid population increase stemmed almost exclusively from the rise in the scale of the slave trade. Mm. So it became very much very big business across the Atlantic towards South Central and North America, and also because of the expansion of the plantation economy. 
So the more plantations were created, the more slaves they needed. There was very low increase in slave population from natural birth. And actually there are very, very few women going to the region, both enslaved or free. For all those reasons, the historian John McNeil, who wrote a very seminal book called Mosquitoes Empires, nicknamed the Caribbean a sinkhole for humanity because it had many deadly epidemics that killed most of the adult Europeans that were coming to the Caribbean. But obviously, it was also a space that was the, um, the end destination of kidnapped and enslaved Africans. Many millions of them ended their lives on the shores of the Caribbean. So you can see that diseases helped shape the demographics of the region quite significantly. And in large sugar colonies, the ratio of free Europeans to African slaves was generally one European to 10 slaves. The reason for this ratio, we understand now quite easily, is because of the um, lethality of yellow fever and malaria and of the assumed greater resistance to those diseases, even though, again, there was very little understanding of how those diseases worked. So clearly disease impacted demographics in the Caribbean, but what were the political impacts? As you have understood, yellow fever and malaria did attack some people much more than others, and the people that attacked tended to be the European-born planters and traders rather than the enslaved Africans. And, well, the political consequences are quite easy to see because the immunity or non-immunity to diseases played a key part in determining challenges to imperial control in parts of the Caribbean. Basically, if you were, didn't have immunity, if there was a revolt, there were just as many chances of you being killed by the disease as by the army. And that really gave a lot of strength to people who were rebelling against imperial rule or against uh, slavery. And that's the example I want to bring forward. So this one is not um, a British example, but it is probably the most famous one. And it played quite an important role in challenging wider European role in the Caribbean. So the example is the Haitian revolution that gave birth to modern day Haiti. But it took place in an island that was called Saint-Domingue. At the time, it was a French possession uh, from 1791 to 1804. So right after the start of the French Revolution. And the outcome of the Haitian Revolution was the birth of the first independent Black Republic. In the story of the Haitian Revolution, infections such as yellow fever and malaria actually made sure that former slaves were successful because, well, they're fighting very large forces of adults, many soldiers who were freshly sent out from Europe to stop them. And all of them were newcomers to the Caribbean islands. You can already probably presume what difference it made in addition to the military strength. Even though the French, British and Spanish army were a lot better trained, they had a lot more weapons, they also had a lot more men because Saint-Domingue, the future 
Haiti was a very, very high priced island. It produced a lot of sugar. It represented a lot of capital. Despite the numerical force of the European armies, the black revolutionaries, the former slaves were victorious. In total, France, which was the power that was initially controlling the island, sent in between 60 and 65,000 men to suppress the slave revolution. About 50,000 died. So it's an estimate of 80 to 85% of the soldiers. And even though it was a very bloody revolution, there are lots of massacres, lots of combat. The kind of median guess is that in between 35 and 45,000 of the soldiers died of disease, most of them of yellow fever, which was a lot more lethal than malaria. One of the revolutionary leaders, his name is Toussaint Louverture, who was uh, the leaders of the, the Black Revolutionary Armies for most of the war, was credited for having a very good understanding of the power of yellow fever. He saw yellow fever as the supreme weapon for the weak. And sometimes he actually decided to abstain from battles that would be very deadly for his own troops. And he preferred to actually let the climate work its magic on the European forces. But the Haitian revolution is maybe the exception in a space that was still overwhelmingly relying on slavery. Slavery itself was only abandoned as a practice much later in most of the other colonies. Yellow fever and malaria shaped a lot of political struggles between Europeans and people who were fighting for independence in North, Central and South America. And even though people of African descent played a prominent role in nearly every case, in most of the other stories, it's mostly struggles between European forces and the descendants of settlers who have been living for a few generations in the colonies, such as in the United States, in Mexico, in most of the South American uh, republics that were created in the 19th century. So um, the Haitian Revolution is very unique when it comes to as the example of a successful slave revolution that ends up creating an independent republic. But if we think about diseases and the Americas, this revolution, this revolt, is quite similar to other revolutions that show how the immunity of people who were born and raised in the Americas helped them eventually overcome and gain independence from imperial powers because of differential immunity. So just to sum all of that up, we have the Europeans who come over to North America, bringing many diseases, especially smallpox. It clears vast portions of land because it kills everybody, and that allows them to easily seize that land and claim it for their own. Then as all the indigenous people die and are not able to be enslaved by the Europeans, and as all the indigenous people had died, this stimulates the importation of slaves from West Africa. With their slave labor, the Europeans cultivate cash crops on their plantations, such as sugar, and this makes huge transformations to the ecology of the area itself, allowing for mosquitoes to especially thrive. And mosquitoes carry malaria and yellow fever. But lastly, preferential immunity develops amongst those individuals who are enslaved and exposed to these diseases while working. 
and that actually works in the favor of the slave revolts that happens in Haiti, and it partially allows the establishment of an independent republic because the Europeans couldn't handle those diseases themselves. So at this whole conversation, we can see that disease often shapes the way in which humans interact with each other in ways that are unpredictable, especially in a time when they didn't understand what caused disease. But also, it has a power that is utilized by individuals on both sides quite consciously. So this leads us into a conversation about the social ramifications of disease, and Olivia will tell us a little bit more about that. So because there are so many diseases that were killing a lot of people, both the colonizers and the indigenous populations in the different colonies, a lot of colonial writers and physicians described tropical nature as a sort of purgatory that was disguised as an Eden. And the idea was that it was not a place for white men or women, but in a sort of paradox, it was at the same time the very place for white dominion over man and nature. And during the 19th and 20th centuries, physicians tried to formulate and to resolve this dilemma. In doing so, they created a mix of race theory, geographical pathology, and global politics. They call this mixture the study of acclimatization. They sometimes talked about seasoning, uh, acclimatization, acclimatization, or even sometimes creolization according to the different spaces they're going into, but they're all, they're all referring to the same process. So this was very much a climate-focused medical study. By focusing on the climate, the scientists were investigating the interactions between racial constitutions and regional environment. It was very useful in helping shape colonial ideology. The end result was the superposition of frames for diseases, the environment and race in most imperial contexts. So disease, environment and race often meant different aspects of the same thing. And the consequences of these discourses were very impactful. When you think of colonization, you often think about military conquest and war and conflict, but discourses were just as important because they fed into a lot of contemporary prejudices and preconceptions. But in this theory of acclimatization, there was a sort of shift that happened halfway through the 19th century. So there's a before and after. Before the 1830s, most experts of acclimatization argued that human races could eventually adapt their constitutions and their vulnerabilities to new circumstances. By the mid 19th century, the conception of acclimatization changed quite a bit. Medical texts changed their stance, and at this point, they were assuming racial fixity. So they were going against the previous idea that you could adapt to new environment because race was seen as something completely fixed that you couldn't change. So what you're saying is that as Europeans came up with the concept of racial hierarchy, they started to come up with characteristics of each so-called race. And some of those characteristics were specifically the response to disease and the ability to live in a warm climate. So because they were trying to justify things like slavery based on race, uh, colonial power over individuals who are not white, they tried to reason that being white had specifically inherent characteristics and 
also being not white. Yeah, it's because they were assuming this racial fixity. You were either white and always white, black and always black. There's always this idea if you had one drop of African-American blood, there was no way you could become white. Because of this assumption of racial fixity, there was no longer talk of adaptation. And whatever was tropical, whatever laid on both sides of the equator, was increasingly framed as non-European. And because it was non-European, it was seen as dangerous. And when you think about migration into the tropical colonies, medics and physicians argued that Europeans risked physiological and mental breakdown. And we can find a lot of these assumptions in colonial fiction. If you just think about Joseph Conrad or uh, Rupert Kipling, a lot of their stories are about how the monotonous heat and the humidity of tropical spaces, whether in India, in sub-Saharan Africa, how they drive Europeans to despair, to murder, to suicide. So, to sum up, in much of the colonial medical theory after the 1850s, the climate insidiously leads to physical disease and moral degeneracy. And it was not long before these assumptions transferred into sort of pseudo-scientific and anthropological understanding of human groups. Race itself became pretty much a medical category. Race explained the diseases rather than environmental factors. And it provided a scientific basis for social Darwinism because it helped justify imperial power by European nations over most parts of the world. So while we're talking about the concept of disease and race and how they intertwine, we're going to bring on a guest speaker today, whose name is Manikarnika Dutta. She's a PhD student at the University of Oxford. She has a lot of insight on how cholera was redefined as a racial disease in the 19th century. All right, well, welcome, Manny. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, could you just tell everybody what you're studying? Hi, uh, so I'm a DPhil student of history faculty at Oxford, and more specifically, my, uh, my in, in, for my thesis, I've looked at the health of the European seamen in, in colonial port cities, so, um, you know, namely Calcutta and Bombay. So broadly, I kind of look at public health in, uh, during the 19th century colonial India. Great. So it looks like you know a lot about today's subject, and we were wondering if you could give us some idea of how disease affected colonization in the British Empire? Uh, it was in 1757 with the Battle of Plassey that the British they set uh, their foothold in India and India was in fact considered to be the tropics. Now it's important to understand that tropic as a concept kind of became a way of defining the cultural alienation and environmental distinctiveness from Europe. So what we find is the topographical surveys that were conducted by the British and the medical texts that were written about this physiological and the pathological consequences of warm climates. It described India as an exotic space and not just as an exotic space, but also as a dangerous and as an unfamiliar environment. Thus, we see that this idea of tropics helped to emphasize this difference between the West and the East the Orient and the Occident. And the medical discourses talk about how, how superior the colonizers were and how inferior the natives were. And, you know, the healthier part of the world 
was the temperate zone and just opposite that were the tropics. So what we find is towards the end of 18th century and maybe the first decade of the 19th century, there was this belief of the fact that, you know, the Europeans who were almost obsessed with this idea of enlightenment man, that they would be able to adapt, you know, that they had this ability to adapt to all circumstances and conditions, which was popularly known to be the acclimatization theory or the, the idea of seasoning. This kind of climatic determinism and this idea of optimism started dwindling from the second decade of the 19th century related to the outbreak of the Asiatic cholera in 1817. So what was unique about cholera was the fact that it struck suddenly and there was this unpredictability about the disease. A person who was apparently healthy at one point might be seized the next by violent vomiting and uncontrollable purging. And that was coupled with massive loss of body fluids. It was the suddenness of attack that kind of made it exceptionally destructive and, uh, and you know, looked upon as a terrifying disease. And there's a chance they can die because of dehydration and septic shock. Yeah, absolutely. So cholera was kind of seen to be this classic example of epidemic diseases that, that could be comparable only to the Black Death. And India was in fact considered to be the epicenter of cholera. What it is really important to note is that cholera was not just an epidemic disease, but rather it took a pandemic form. It struck India and more particularly Bengal in 1817, but by early 1820s, it reached Britain and it advanced to Europe by 1830. And in fact, it across Atlantic to New York by 1832. Cholera was something that was already known to the British before as well. But what they encountered in India, you know, they considered that to be very different from the cholera that they knew. So that's the kind of, you know, identified it to be Asiatic cholera. So the first cholera pandemic really emerged in 1817, as you were saying. And then this became labeled as Asiatic cholera, which is different from the cholera that the Europeans had encountered before, um, but mostly yeah. by concept, not specifically by symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. So what was unique about the cholera outbreak in 1817 was the fact that, that this particular disease was considered inherently Indian. So what cholera did was in a way to reinstate the fact that India was this land of death and disease and despair. Identifying India as a disease zone gave way to justifying colonial rule. And medicine, in fact, has been identified as a tool of the empire. So what you're saying is that the British went to new places with different environments that they weren't used to. It caused them to die because they got infected and they also brought diseases with them. So people there also got infected and they connected death with these tropical environments and then created racist concepts based on those. Yes, and specifically, it has kind of proven how the study of diseases and study of epidemics and how important it is to understand what exactly is happening to us, for example, right now. I think the biggest takeaway from the history of cholera would be naming and labeling of a disease because cholera was kind of identified to be a Bengali disease. Similarly, we find in the case of COVID-19 too, there has been blaming because the diseases originated from China, from Wuhan. And so there has been this blame game that has been going on. Now, not only kind of blaming the Chinese government, but unfortunately it has stretched onto the East Asian people in general. For example, in India, also we find that the Northeastern people who kind of uh, look 
similar to the Chinese having uh, similar facial features, uh, they have also been attacked even in India. So this trend is something that continued from 19th century and unfortunately it's still going on in 21st century. So hopefully we, you know, we can learn from our mistakes and stop making such racial comments and calling out names and so on and so forth. Well, thanks so much, Manny. I think you shed some really good light on the history of infectious diseases, especially the social labels that are applied to them. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today and good luck with your research. And uh, thanks for having me too. So we've talked a lot about um, the Americas and South Asia, but what about Africa? What's happening there? Well, good question. The impact of disease and specific colonization on Africa is much later, mostly because of how Europe actually interacted with the continent itself. It wasn't until much later that Europeans actually decided Africa was very important to have. Before that, they mostly used it for trade along coastal cities. Um, But inland and the actual land itself wasn't really viewed as very important until the late 1800s. And that is when the European powers sat down and they actually divided up the continent itself for occupation amongst themselves. And the idea that they agreed upon was that in order to have the peace you claim of Africa, you must have something called effective occupation. The result of this partitioning and the requirement for effective occupation meant that they couldn't just claim it on a map. They had to send in missionaries, soldiers, and especially settlers to actually lay claim to the land itself and occupy it effectively. So the effects of disease then are that the European settlers tend to take places that were not um, prone to things like malaria, for instance. We talked about malaria much earlier, so I think you've got an idea for that, but that meant that the most valuable land, which was not likely to have malaria or a lot of mosquitoes on it, was taken by European settlers. Indigenous populations were pushed in during land wars into areas that were more likely to have disease. But malaria is never a total obstacle at this time. They have developed medical treatment for it, specifically quinine, which is actually what goes into tonic water. So, so the classic gin and tonic that is associated with Britain is actually a legacy of colonialism. But one thing that's often left out of these conversations about disease and empire is actually the way that disease impacted other creatures that are non-human. So for instance, cattle. And we often think of disease as a human-to-human transfer, but there is cases, especially with the importation of settlers, where livestock that they bring with them also bring diseases which then infect livestock within the colonies. One really important example of this is the disease render pest, which is introduced by the Italians during the invasion of Eritrea in 1889. And it's especially devastating in Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, South Africa, Zambia. It kills up to 90% of the cattle in these areas. And that's a really devastating thing for pastoral societies who relied upon cattle. The initial consequence is starvation, the disruption of economic structures which were already in existence followed by social and political dislocation. And amidst this, the Europeans are really able to exploit the chaos and destruction to their own benefit. And it really helps especially British and German colonization. With the loss of cattle, you also have the ecological impacts of large grasslands, which were usually grazing lands for cattle movement, suddenly kind of being left to be reinvaded by other types of creatures, which brings in hogs, which brings in kind of more swampy areas and overgrowth and large patchy grasses. And this brings in something called the tsetse fly. The tsetse fly brought in sleeping sickness, and there were epidemics of sleeping sickness that happened in the late 1800s because of this too. So one disease harms cattle, render pests, which then changes the environment itself, which then leads to the other disease brought in by a new vector, which is the tsetse fly. 
in European minds, these epidemics justified their presence because they were there to bring medicine, to bring infrastructure, to bring sanitation to lands that before that, the indigenous Africans knew very well how to handle tsetse fly. They cleared large areas. They would burn sections of land to get rid of the fly. They had pastoral society specifically because that environmental coexistence really diminished the effect of tsetse fly. But with the Europeans bringing this in, it changes the landscape. And then the Europeans say, oh, you need us for sanitation and for infrastructure. So, Paula, your expertise is in the history of vaccination. How does it change this kind of relationship between diseases and empire when vaccines are invented? Yes, it's complicated because vaccines are another way in which Europeans are able to assert control over certain populations. In times of crisis and epidemic, it's easier to just, in general, assert control. We see that today, even with quarantine, we're all stuck inside, and it's a lot easier for the government to pass emergency measures because it is an emergency. And Europeans are able to do similar things when it comes to smallpox outbreaks or the epidemics of sleeping sickness. And they introduce new vaccination campaigns, which build infrastructure to get to areas where there's a sickness, implement vaccination amongst all the people there, with or without consent. Now, today we require, of course, fully informed consent. Um, but even in emergency situations, such as the Ebola outbreak, you have these large teams of external Western doctors and Western public health officials who still go in to areas that were formerly colonized using similar routes and have a similar power structure. So it's very difficult for people to trust Western doctors coming in. We also saw this, for example, in the 1970s when the World Health Organization initiated this large immunization campaign within Pakistan, specifically for combating polio. They utilize these similar strategies of, of you know, on mass vaccines, the doctor arrives and, and there's a lot of pressure to have a vaccine, even if it ends up having a lot of fear and backlash. There's this, um, this belief that it was actually going to sterilize them. And this led to a lot of resistance. So there's a lot of distrust on public health strategies still that are a legacy of this imperial medical power. So ultimately, European movements in the colonial period spread disease like never before caused epidemics and pandemics which facilitated colonial conquest. They redefined disease in a social lens, and then they based beliefs about racial hierarchies and fitness on public health treatments. Many public health strategies were born during this period, and they still exist today as almost a legacy of imperial policy. It's very difficult to avoid them when the entire basis of your healthcare structure is based upon them. And that's one of the struggles that many people have today when they're doing research in public health policy on defining how to get equitable access to health that is culturally sensitive, that is not incredibly imperial or westernized, and that can have effective outcomes worldwide. So that's the end of this podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening. Now we do have a list of recommended readings if you're interested in getting even further into any of these subjects. We will post it on our webpage, www.uncomfortableoxford.com, as well as a full transcript for anyone who wants to read it. My name is Paul Larson. I was joined today by Olivia Durand, my co-founder for Uncomfortable Oxford, and Manikarnika Dutta. This podcast will be releasing episodes every two weeks up until the summertime, um, and it's based on a lecture series that we host in Oxford itself. Currently shut down because of, of course, social distancing and quarantine measures, um, but it does happen monthly on the first Thursday of every month. 
We will continue to release those lectures, starting with lecture one, which we skipped over when we released this one because this was a special release. But we'll start with lecture one and move forward through time. And it's going to give a very basic introduction to the British Empire, starting with Atlantic Ocean conquest and then all the way up until the end of the British Empire officially and the establishment of the Commonwealth. The music you're hearing is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz. And we want to give our sincere thanks to Torch, the Oxford Center for Humanities, who supports this podcast. So tune back in and keep an eye out. Subscribe to this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. We hope to see you again in two weeks' time. Mm-hmm.